effort here. I know Lauren Pritchard has made some of these signs just as we are beginning here as a church. Also very fitting for what we've been going through in the story of Acts, talking about the places God has dwelled throughout the scriptures, and ultimately it's in us and in our being that he's making his inner dwelling. So we have some of these out by the donuts in the fellowship hall. If you want to grab one, please do so. I just wanted to highlight that real quick. I love this because we've been going through Acts the last several weeks, seeing how God's worked through these early disciples and how this movement grew and really overtook the whole Roman world. And we're looking at this because we're saying, God, we want to also lean on you the same way these early disciples leaned on you. We long for you to work through us to see this county impacted by the gospel. And we realize this is not going to happen in our own strength in our own wisdom, in our own effort. So, so how is God working in them in Acts? Because we long for him to do the same in us. And so we see right in the beginning of Acts, beautifully, that Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on his disciples. In Acts chapter two, there's these two signs that are associated with it. There's a loud sound from heaven, and there are these tongues of fire that come to rest over each individual's head. So this is a very odd way for God to pour out his spirit. But we looked back on the scriptures and we saw that these same signs, a loud sound and fire, were associated with God's glory coming down among his people. On Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, when God's presence filled the tabernacle, when his presence filled the temple, again and again, these signs are associated with God's presence coming among his people. So now in Acts chapter 2 is the disciples, these followers of Jesus, are filled with the Holy Spirit. These same signs, a loud sound and fire, is, is a statement to us that these disciples, I mean, hear me, these, these people who are not perfect, but have brokenness and sin in their life, these people are being transformed into a new temple of God's presence. They're now this walking conduit of renewal where God's pouring out through them to the world around them. It's a beautiful statement of what disciples of Jesus now are, new temples. We saw last week how two of these new temples, Peter and John, walk into the old temple. The new temples walk into the old temples. And as they do so, Peter and John, they come across a man who's lame from birth outside the temple gate called Beautiful, and this man is begging for money. And Peter and John, when they see him, they say, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And Peter reaches down and he grabs this lame man's hand, begins to help him up, and it says, immediately, his ankles and feet were made strong. And the man leapt to his feet and he went into the temple courts with them. He, he's never been in the temple courts before. As a, as a lame man, he would have been seen as unclean. You can't go into the holy grounds of the temple. He's always seen people walking by him day after day after day, going into the temple, and he's always on the outside. Now, for the first time, he's able to enter in because the name of Jesus has healed him. And he's leaping He's rejoicing. He's praising God. When they get into the temple courts, everyone's amazed because they've been walking by this guy for years. We're going to see here this morning, this man was over 40 years old. Everybody knew this guy. Everybody had seen his face day after day after day, but now he's standing 
and walking, and they're amazed. They come running to Peter and John as they see the lame man holding on to them, and Peter takes this moment to preach about Jesus. He's the resurrected king. Now, this is where our story is going to pick up for us this morning in Acts chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up there with me. I won't have these on slides for us today. So if you don't have a Bible, no worries. Uh, just listen as I read this. It's a longer section, so bear with me. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 31. Again, Acts chapter 4. I'll read this. This is what happens as Peter is preaching. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our father. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. 
Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. We say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Even as last week we saw Luke, the author of Acts, was making a contrast between the new temple, these disciples of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit, and the old temple that was powerless to heal. A lame man had been sitting outside for 40 years. This week, he's drawing a comparison, a contrast between the old temple leadership and the new temple leadership. Those that were the rulers, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, and the new leadership and the disciples of Jesus. We're going to see this contrast. I want to look at three ways Luke contrasts them so that we can see what kind of hearts does God desire to pour out his power through. What does he long to work in? So before we get into this, though, I first want to look at who is this old leadership. We've talked about the new before, and Peter and John, but, but who are these people that are the old temple leadership? See this again in Acts chapter 4, verse 5 through 6. Let me read this one more time. have this on a slide for you. Luke describes them. He says, the next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. It's all the bigwigs. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Now, Luke does not go into detail to describe these people, but he's expecting his readers to know who they are and the importance of these different names. It's helpful because these same names are described elsewhere in the New Testament and also in other sources from the first century that are not Christian sources. And we know from this that Annas was a very powerful and influential person in this day. He was actually appointed high priest by the Romans back in AD 6. I mean, this is right at the start of the first century, Jesus being six years old, right? That's when Annas became the high priest. He had five sons, and his sons were the high priest after him so that he was the patriarch over this immensely powerful family for decades. So basically a dynasty of control that Annas had for years and years and years. Incredibly powerful person. See, the second name in this list, Caiaphas, is his son-in-law. And Caiaphas is the high priest at this moment and through the story of Acts. You might also remember Caiaphas is the high priest when Jesus is crucified and tried. And we know that Caiaphas, he, I mean, he had to be a sly, savvy guy because he's in this role of high priest for 18 years, navigating very difficult relations between the Romans and the Jews. Very savvy. However, it's Annas who is still the power behind the scenes. This is partly why Annas is still called the high priest here. It's kind of like how we still refer to past presidents as president so-and-so, even if they're not in the role any longer. Also, it's why Annas is named first. If you remember as well, the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, do you remember where he was taken first? First person Jesus is taken to, Annas. Why? He's the power in this whole structure of the Jewish leadership, so he's named first Caiaphas is also extremely influential. Other names here, John or Jonathan was another one of these sons of Annas who was later the high priest. Alexander is likely a member of the royal family. There's several different Alexanders. Why are we going all these details about these people? I want you to see 
that these were some of the most powerful and influential Jews of their day. Incredibly influential. They are used to people respecting them. They're used to awing people with their power. They're used to getting things their way. And the world works very well for this family, and they're highly interested in keeping things the way they are because it's benefiting them deeply. Do you see this? They are at the top of the pyramid, and they are great with how things are. I also say this because I want you to notice again how historically reliable Luke's witness is to us. Again, we know these names also from other first century historians like Josephus. It's also Caiaphas's tomb has been found in Jerusalem. These are real historical people that have been confirmed. So we see from Luke, he's telling us reliable data that matches up with other witnesses in the first century. Again and again, we're seeing he has access to reliable information and the witness of eyewitness testimony. See this. So I want to keep listening to him. So we have this highly influential old temple leadership and the new temple leadership, if you will, of Jesus' disciples. This first contrast we see here is the deep motives going on. These old temple leaderships, the elders, the high priests, they are driven by the desire to preserve their power and their prestige. Whereas the disciples of Jesus, they're interested in making Jesus known. The old leadership really wants to maintain the esteem of the people and how things are, but Jesus' disciples are longing to proclaim the name of Jesus. So the first difference here is the old leadership is about self-promotion, and this new leadership is about Jesus' proclamation. They have very different motives at the heart. How do we see this in this passage? Look back with me in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, it says that Peter and John are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And when this leadership hears this, it says they're greatly disturbed. This is not mildly annoyed. This is not thrown off a little bit or upset. They're full-on panic. This is greatly disturbing to them. Why? Now, we know this old temple leadership did not believe that there was any resurrection of the dead. Many other Jews in this day did believe that there would one day be a resurrection at the end of time that God would resurrect the righteous. This group in leadership did not believe in any resurrection at all, just this life to be enjoyed. But here, now they find Peter and John teaching hundreds in the temple, not only that there is a resurrection one day, but that Jesus has been already resurrected from the dead. The same Jesus that they were responsible for crucifying weeks before. As Judas was betraying Jesus and came up to people saying, what will you give me in order to betray him to you? Who do you think Judas is talking to? Annas, Caiaphas, the high priests. So they they hear this teaching, Jesus is raised from the dead. And they're saying, this is not just an opinion about what might happen at the end of time. This is a current reality. Jesus has been raised. We're eyewitnesses of this. Seems to unsettle them so much because it's not just one or two people who are listening to them. But they say the number of believers grew to 5,000 men. 
We know earlier in Acts 2 that number was up to 3,000. So it's probably several hundred or even a thousand that in this moment are putting their trust in Jesus because they see a man who was born lame now standing, praising God and leaping in the temple courts. You see this. So what's so disturbing to these leaders is not just the teaching, but how that teaching undermines their power and authority. For if Jesus is raised from the dead, then he's the center of God's work and renewal in the world. Not them. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then he's the avenue in being able to commune with God, not this old temple leadership. If Jesus is truly raised from the dead, that means that all his teaching is true. All his warnings are true. It means that God has confirmed him as the Messiah and these leaders have been responsible for crucifying the Messiah. So they are not interested in this being true at all. They're greatly disturbed by this message. But notice how different the disciples of Jesus are. It says that they are full of courage. They're not greatly disturbed. They're full of courage. This is interesting because they're the ones that are thrown in prison, right? They're the ones that can be flogged and beaten, but they're not concerned about themselves. How so? They're not driven by self-preservation, self-consideration, or their own name and glory. Clearly, these disciples we see are driven by an eagerness to proclaim the name of Jesus. They say, we can't help but speak about him. So they're not longing for their own comfort or ability. What they're longing for is Jesus to be proclaimed. And they're not afraid. They're not filled with fear, even though their lives are in the hands of these elders and leaders because they know Jesus has been raised. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And all power and authority belongs to my Savior. So what do I have to fear? Do you see this? So they're full of boldness, they're full of courage because they're not interested in preserving their own life. They know they're founded on the unshakable foundation of Jesus. Completely different motive. Clearly this same contrast exists in leadership today. There are leaders out there who are driven by desire to collect followers and who want a bigger and bigger platform And there are other leaders who are driven by a desire for Jesus to be lifted up. Also, very clearly, this same contrast exists in the church. Not just our church, but in the church more broadly. It's interesting that even ministering to others on behalf of Jesus is something that can be done in order to gather followers, to have people like you and garner respect and have a platform. Ministry can be used as a way for self-promotion. I wish I could tell you all here today that my heart was immune to these things, but it's not. This is a weakness for my own heart. So I'm inviting all of you here this morning to look at the leadership of our church, at one another, and at my heart specifically, and to lovingly challenge us when you see some other motive than the name of Jesus driving us as a church. Again, I wish that I was immune to this, but I know this contrast exists in my own heart. And so we lovingly need one another to say, let Jesus and his name be the engine of our hearts, not ourselves. Do you see this? In the same way, I ask you, also look at your own heart. 
in the places where you have influence and leadership, where that's in your home, in your work, among friends, just ask you, what is driving your heart? What is motivating you? Are you longing for the applause of the people around you to be seen and thought more of highly? Or are you driven by a love of others and the love of Jesus? That the main thing drawing out your heart for others is who Christ is and what he's done for you. Is that the engine of your heart or are other things driving you? If any of you wants to be first, let them be the slave of all. And then he makes this even more clear. He says, for I, the son of man, did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So if this is what our king and savior has done, not seeking out his own gain, but sacrificing himself for us, how do we take on that same mind? How do we take on that same attitude? Let's be driven by a passion for him. Second contrast here, not just the motive of self-promotion or Jesus' proclamation, but we also see this old leadership relies on their own wisdom, their own knowledge, and so therefore they are empty of any meaningful explanation and truth. On the other hand, the disciples of Jesus are relying on God, his wisdom, and the Holy Spirit, and they are overflowing with deep explanation and have a hold of the truth. Again, how how do we see this in the passage? Look again at verse 16. It says that these leaders, as they're discussing what to do, they say, what what are we going to do with these men? They're conferring together, the, the smartest, brightest leaders, and they have no idea what to do with the disciples of Jesus because a man who is lame from birth is standing right next to them. And they cannot accept their explanation that it was Jesus that healed the man. They cannot accept that, yet they cannot give any other explanation. They are empty. They have nothing to say. They're stumped. On the other hand, Jesus' disciples know exactly what to say. Overflowing with the Spirit, Peter says, it's the name of Jesus that made this man well. Let you and all the people of Israel, anyone interested in the truth, know this. It's the name of Jesus and faith in him that this man has been healed. More than that, they know the significance and meaning of this healing. They say powerfully in verse 12 this statement. They say, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. They know the meaning of this. They're full of the truth. I want to pause and acknowledge, though, this has got to be one of the most frustrating verses for most people in our culture, modern, secular mindset to hear. I feel like, really? There's only salvation in one name? There's only one way to finding life, and that's in Jesus? So all the other people in the world, all the other religions are wrong. It's just no one else but Jesus. Before we look at this, however, I just want to step back and see how this would also have been offensive to this old temple leadership before connecting it to us. You see, this old temple leadership, the leaders, the high priests, the rulers, they were convinced that salvation is found by keeping the law and by making sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. 
So this whole temple complex that they're overseeing is a way through sacrifices people can commune with God. They think it's their work and their role that's key for salvation for people. But Peter says, no, it is not you, temple leadership. There is a new cornerstone and a new foundation, and his name is Jesus, that you rejected. He's become the cornerstone. You think that it's the law and your obedience that makes you right with God. We're here to tell you it's Jesus and what he has done that makes you right with God. You think it's these sacrifices day after day after day that are given morning and evening that allow there to be forgiveness of sins and communion with God. But Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice who's more than enough for all of us. And it's in him that we find the forgiveness of sins. And it's not you broken high priests full of selfish ambition who are the means for us to have a mediator between us and God. It is Jesus who is the true high priest, who is the true mediator between us and God. He's saying, you old temple leadership, you've been overthrown. There's now a cornerstone in Jesus. He's the way we find salvation. I think this will help us understand the offense that we might feel by this statement, salvation is found in no one else. Again, people wrestle with this. This feels very narrow-minded of Christians to say only in Jesus is salvation when there are millions of others who have a different religion and think differently. Are we really that strict and narrow-minded? I think what we need to see is that our problem is that we do not understand the issue we're dealing with. We don't understand the disease that we're wrestling with. See, see our problem is not a lack of information. Our problem is not a lack of meditation or moral instruction or worship to some God. So that as long as you're looking somewhere, all routes lead up the same mountain. That is not the problem. The issue all of us are facing, if you actually look at our world, is the brokenness of our own hearts. It's your sin and it's my sin that I see is the great problem in our world. That's where the issue is coming from. It's that we've been separated from God and we all revolve around ourselves. We're in rebellion against him. So there's this internal disease in us of sin. That is the problem. And what we need is a savior who can deal with our sin. We need a savior who can come in and remake our hearts who can give us a new spirit, who can lead us and empower us to actually walk in his ways. That's what we need. This is why Peter says salvation is found in no one else. For hear me, no one else has lived a perfect life on your behalf except for Jesus. No one else has been crucified in your place except for Jesus. No one else has been crucified and buried and yet was raised from the dead so that he defeated death except for Jesus. And no one else has ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all things except for Jesus. This is why we say there's salvation in no other name. Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else that has been crucified for you to take the penalty of your sin that you could find forgiveness? Is there anyone else who's conquered death in the grave? No, there's no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
Even for my own heart, I look in this and I say, how can my own brokenness be dealt with? Am I really going to look to my own self and strength to try to be better in order for my life to change? My own brokenness has been very persistent. You with me? I need a savior. It can't come from me. It can't just come from better teaching. It, just, it can't come from just a different worship to some idol. I need a God who can come into my inner being and give me a new heart. I need a God who can come in and pour out his spirit and make me clean. Not because I've been good enough or right enough or gone to church or work as a pastor, but because he is such a faithful, amazing, sufficient savior. That's what I need. And I've not been able to find any other savior except for Jesus. I cannot look to myself. No other place has been enough for me to find a foundation or a cornerstone except for Christ's. So here these disciples, they're not trying to be exclusive. They're not trying to be narrow-minded. They're simply telling you the only cure for the disease of our hearts. It's Jesus and him alone. So whereas the old leadership is empty of any meaningful explanation of truth, we see these disciples are overflowing with the truth of what we need to hear. Thirdly, Last contrast, this old leadership relies on their own power through manipulation, through coercion, through threatening. Whereas the disciples do not look to themselves, but immediately go to prayer in reliance on God. So again, we have relying on their own power versus relying on God's power. How do we see this? It says, after the disciples have shared this truth about Jesus, the Sanhedrin and the leadership gather together and confer. And as they're talking, they land on, we're going to command them to no longer speak at all in the name of Jesus. And they command, using their own authority, their own impressive status to say, we command you to no longer speak in this name. I love Peter and John's response, saying, you tell us what's right. Do we obey you or do we obey God? As for us, we cannot help but speak in this name. Seeing that their intimidation and their command has not worked, they begin to use manipulation and threatening them. They, they say, if you do this anymore, there's this threat of flogging and beating. That's what they're trying to lay over their heads. But notice how they can't actually use this in the moment. <laughs> Again, there's a lame man who's now standing and praising God because of these two. Are they going to flog them and beat them for healing this man? That's just simply bad PR no matter where you live or what time frame you're from, right? They know they can't do that. They only have threats and coercion and manipulation. That's what they're leaning on. But look at these disciples of Jesus. For them, they go back to the other followers of Jesus when they're released, and they tell them everything that's happened, and they immediately begin to lift up their eyes to God. They immediately begin to pray. It's not that they're in fear. It's not that they set out their own strategy for how to avoid the high priest and the leadership. They're not even beginning their own campaign of manipulation and trying to draw out their power base to compete with this old temple leadership. None of that. What they immediately do is pray. Love this in the Psalms. It says, where does my help come from? I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
exactly what they're praying here. Lord, you are the maker of heaven and earth, the seas and everything in it. We are looking to you for our help. It's not their power. It's not what they have. They're looking to the deep source, knowing it is Jesus and Jesus alone who can supply them. I see here before we wrap up, notice what happens in verse 31 after they've prayed. It says the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I find this very fascinating because we know that there has to be many of the same disciples in this room that were in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 when they were filled with the Holy Spirit then. We also see in Acts chapter 4, while he is speaking, Peter's filled again with the Holy Spirit. And now after prayer, this whole group is filled with the Holy Spirit. This tells us that God pouring out his spirit on his people is not a one and done experience. It is something God does again and again and again as his people look to him. As they rely on him, God meets them with his power. You see, God is longing for us to be filled with his power. But at the same time, he doesn't want us to fall into the delusion that once we have this power, we're good to go. We have all that we need. We're okay. We have everything in control. He wants us to remain dependent and looking at him. That I'll never be convinced that I'm actually the source and the solution, but I'll always deeply know you, God, are the fountain. You, Lord, are my foundation and the one I'm going to look to. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart, my portion forever. So let me look to you again and again and again, because I know you're able to supply us. That's, that's what I want here, King's Cross, for us, that we would be a church that is never convinced we have power on our own, in our ideas, or our strategy, or even a great new building. None of that is what really matters. It's us looking to the one who has all authority and power, Jesus, and saying, we will look to you. You with me? That's, that's what we need again and again and again. And we have a God of such abundance that he'll meet us and fill us in our need. As he shows, I am the reliable one. I will meet you, so look to him. I'm gonna invite our band to come back up for us to continue in worship. If you're helping with communion, if you could jump and take that as well, that'd be great. I just want to ask a couple questions here, though. What, what is motivating your heart again in this contrast? Is it mainly selfish ambition, self-concern, self-preservation? Or is your heart captured by a vision of who Jesus is and that is your desire? Are you leaning on your own wisdom? Or do you see the truth of who Jesus is in his word? You're saying, this is where I look. You're relying on your own power or on his power. So leadership, we desire to be here in your own areas of influence. Let God work in you as you look to him. So beautiful.